You see them often, maybe every day, maybe far less often. They open your car doors at carpool. They wave hello as you drive in. They teach classes, they coach, advise, they lead, they write, they inspire. They keep the facilities humming, the bills paid, the food served hot and delicious, and so much more. But how much do we really know about each other? Everyone here at Shadyside Academy has a story, and in learning other stories, we can create a more connected and inclusive community. I'm Chad Green, Dean of Student and Residential Life at the Senior School. And I'm Lauren Lieberman, Director of College Counseling. Welcome to Beyond Hello, a podcast production bringing you stories from the people who shape our community. Wow, well, that was fun. We've just interviewed Gil Schneider, Shadyside's CFO, and our, our colleague and friend who is retiring, and I think he said just about a month. And as we expected, Chad, his, his conversation was just filled with great stories, anecdotes, but also just so many pearls of wisdom that we can all take with us going forward. What do, what do you think you'll take with you? What do you think one of those pearls is for you? There are so many. I mean, we could be talking to Gil for hours. Uh, and I think for the, all of you who are listening, I hope, if, I hope you'll get the chance to um, if you if you know Gil, that you'll you'll continue to stay in touch with him. And if you don't know Gil yet, that maybe you'll have the great fortune, great good fortune, to meet up with him at some point. But the you know of all the things that he said, one of them that that just kind of jogged a memory in my in, for me personally was he talked about the poem "If" um, at, toward the end and by Rudyard Kipling. And the first line of that poem is. Um, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Um, and, and Gil personifies this, you know, he, um, I mean, he talks about it, uh, you know, in our conversation, but just this idea of, um, he may not have been the smartest person in the room, but he's the, you know, the, the calmest person in the room. Um, and really just kind of has able to find, he's, he's able to find a balance and a kind of perspective in his day-to-day life that is, that really opens up a lot of possibility, I think, um, mm-hmm. for himself, obviously, but also I think he, he, I imagine, you know, I've never had a chance to work closely with Gil, um, but I imagine that, that the, the perspective that he brings to a conversation or to a difficult uh, situation is one that really does open up possibilities. Uh, and, I, and I have seen that. I mean, I haven't, I say I haven't worked with him closely. I, I have worked with him in the context of Shadyside and, uh, you know, he's always very reassuring. He's, he's a straight shooter. Um, and really, uh, he's leaving an incredible legacy here and and certainly over the course of his career, the other places he's worked to, uh, yeah, just in terms of the impact, what, what stood out for you? Um, yeah, a, a lot of things. I'm, I'm now feeling guilty. I have to admit that sometimes when I would see Gil's name in my caller ID, I'd get nervous because I think, oh my gosh, I'm getting in trouble for something. I've messed something up. What is Gil calling me with? Because um, you know when he's calling, it's something, at least you know for, for where I work, if Gil's calling me, it's, it's something important. Um, but, you know, I just, I always appreciated the small talk that we would have in, in those conversations as well. And um, his, his, his call to action at the end of sort of remembering others and 
you know, the, the quote that we hear often um, that you're only as good as the people around you. And um, I, I, I really, I believe in that. And it's something that I do work hard for, but in, in the tough moments, it's easy to become really absorbed in your own set of issues. And I love that pearl of wisdom and, and that reminder. And um, it's very clear that that is how Gil operates. And I will try to hang on to Gil's wisdom as I move forward on so many levels. Absolutely. Well, this was a, this was a really fun, fun conversation. He's an uh, amazing, amazing man. And um, while I'm very sad to see him leaving shady side, I think uh, I look forward to, to um, hearing of his, the next, the next uh, sort of chapter and all, all of the adventures that, that I hope he gets to go on. Yeah. Sounds great. His adventures, his future adventures sound awesome. Beyond Hello. We are so excited to interview our guest today. We have with us Gil Schneider. And Gil has been the CFO at Shadyside and he has a very interesting story and path and I'm excited to hear it. So Gil, welcome to Beyond Hello. Thank you and good morning. So Gil, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at Shadyside. Well, I'm the CFO of the Academy, as you said, which means in the simplest sense, we run the business office, but the job is much broader than that. I interact with all the school heads, uh, Paul Frenson in the grounds, all the projects we have going on around the campus, as well as work with Nate and Krista on the after school programs, the summer programs, the rental programs. So it's really all the business activities of the Academy, which are quite broad. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about how you got to Shadyside. Tell us about that journey. It, it was a wonderful journey. I had the great fortune of working for over 30 years on the corporate side. And as I think back at this time, yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of ups and downs, but the, the, the fun I had, I mean, to say they paid me for all this all those years, I happen to have the great pleasure of working at a couple great companies where I worked with wonderful people and had the opportunity to travel around the world and always have something that people wanted to talk about. That I remember when I was finishing grad school, people were going off to banking or the chemical or oil industry, boring. I got to work in the booze business. The spirits <laughs> wine. I was popular. When, when you go to a friend's house, I always had something to bring. <laughs> and we had assets all over the world. And as I rose in the company, I'd get to go up to, to Scotland. We called the Northern Operations, the whole distilling. We had chateaus in Cognac, in Bordeaux. We had uh, two big uh, champagne operations in Rennes, France, plus California. I mean, it was just, uh, it was a wonderful place. And a wonderful townhouse in London that we always, it was just, uh, it was just unusually fun and it was a it was a people business mm -hmm. because of the three-tier system in the u.s you had wholesalers and the retail 
And it was just a great connection to this date. I left that over 20 years ago, and I still talked to a number of the people. And then I would, Seagram bought Universal Studios. And for my kids, you know, we're about a little older than Lauren's right now. Your dad's a player in the theme park business. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I said to the kids, gee, I have to go to work on Sunday. You want to come with me? Yes. Wow. And then Heinz, you know, the only thing with Heinz that was different than Seagram, when you bought a bottle, brought a bottle of red, and it was ketchup, wasn't as enticing <laughs> as wine, but still great. And it was a wonderful experience. So uh, I worked 30 years in corporate. And when uh, Heinz was bought out back in what, 2013, I had to decide what to do next. And I have didn't see the need to continue to work on the corporate side. And I knew a few people who were trustees at Shadyside. And I met Tom Congiano. My son was class of 09. So that was my connection to the academy. And I said, you know what? This could be fun. And so that's what brought me to Shadyside Academy. And what, like, what was the biggest difference? What did you immediately see when you went from corporate well, America <laughs> to, to the school? A couple of things. One, as I think Deb Marder asked me the question, she said, what's different? I go, I don't have people. I used to have people. I had hundreds and hundreds of people working for me. I had people. I miss my people. <laughs> <laughs> that was a challenge. And then I, couldn't, I kept saying millions and billions. I kept realizing they were, were rounding to thousands here, not millions and billions. I mean, so I had to fewer, cut off the zeros. Fewer zeros. But no quarters, and that's that was a good thing. And what what have you loved the most? And I, I guess we should say um, at the outset, so it doesn't sound like the tenses are very weird in this. But this is this is your last year at Shady Side, and you're heading into retirement. And we'll get to hear a little bit more about that probably later. Um, but what have you loved most about being at Shady Side during during these times? A couple of different levels. One would be, as you reach a certain age or point in your career, you have to want to start giving back and doing things differently. That when you start out in your career, it's all about me. It's all about, oh, I got to make money. I got to do this. And a certain part of careers, you know, what are you really contributing? And so what I really like about Shady Side is I can make a difference. It's of that size. It's not a big bureaucratic enterprise. I could work with the board, work with the senior team, and we can make changes and do things differently. As Chaz Chad knows, a seven-day boarding. You know, a comparable size project at a corporation would be huge. Or even, you know, merging with Country Day. You know, we didn't need a thousand lawyers and bankers coming in and analyzing the situation. So, you can do things hands-on and do things that make a difference, which I believe will have lasting positive impact on the Academy for decades. Mm -hmm. Cool. Gil, did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. Okay. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> it was an interesting place at the time, and it still is, and now it's a totally different area. Yeah. The gentrification and, uh, and movement around New York City, 
But when I lived, grew up in Jersey City, it was at the bottom of its of its uh, arc, I guess you would say. <laughs> the, 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 and it was, it was, was still up and coming. It, it was not up and coming. It was nowhere near <laughs> up and coming. Yet. It was bottoming out. Okay. <laughs> and but it had we were on one side of us was Newark. When so you looked out one side of your house, you could see Newark. The other side, you could see Manhattan. And I always wondered why were people living in Manhattan had to look at us, <laughs> and they were paying big bucks for that. <laughs> Did what, the, Go ahead. No, we, we were you know we, you know the Liberty National Park wasn't there yet, so it was basically just junkyards. But you're right behind the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island. I mean that's where Jersey City is. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's been discovered over the last 20 years, but 60 years ago. It was a point of, I guess the term was then white flight. Okay. Where people were leaving the cities. Yeah. Uh, in 67, there were the Newark riots, which spilled over into Jersey City. And it had a, a huge impact on the city and people deciding where to live and move. Right. And it was a very uh, tumultuous time. What was, as a kid growing up there, what, what was your school life like and, and what kind of student were you? How would, as you reflect back as, you know, on Gil, um, the, the young student, who were you then? That's a good question. The, as a student, I was, I was the third son and my oldest brother was a, set the bar too high for the other, uh, the other two of us. So that always was a little bit disappointing. Like everywhere I went, oh, you're not the student your brother was. Oh, Jeffrey, he was, um, <laughs> enough of this <laughs> and my other brother was was so determined to follow the oldest he worked exceptionally hard so that was just you know sometimes the way you fit in the in the order has an impact sure. I mean I took I, I took school seriously but I was never a great student but to your point about um, my high school which was a public high school in Jersey City really reflects what was changing environment oh uh, my Entering school, our class was a thousand kids, freshmen, and typically 500 graduated. Wow. Which, and you have to remember, this was the late 60s, early 70s. If you dropped out of high school, you got a one way ticket to Vietnam. You were yeah. a man. Yeah. And so it was not like, oh, great, I'm going to do this. And it was a, it was a really a, a turbulent time in a sense. I mean, we always talk about, oh, today is crazy. There's been a lot of crazy periods before. Sure. And uh, I learned a lot in high school, not all academic. Yeah. Did you, where, so where did that learning happen? Were there, was there a particular mentor or, or teacher even, or, or maybe outside of school that where you well, really felt you were received, um, I don't know, guidance or support? In high school, I would, it was very transactional to me, high school. Hmm. You had to do it. Um, I realized quickly because you know, my brother, were, were, my oldest brother started high school in 65, and I graduated in 73. So the three of us were there in a, in a short window of time. But between my oldest brother started in 65, and I ended in 73, it was a totally different school. The teachers were all started teaching in the 50s, so they were getting near the end of their careers. They didn't like the students anymore. And it was a very difficult environment in that sense. So I really I can't really think of any teacher uh, in high school. Yeah. It, although my eighth grade teacher was actually one of, you know, to your question of who's left a, 
a real impact on me. He was like the youngest teacher I had to that point. He was only 23. Our eighth grade teacher had retired. They found this 23 year old. We were 13 or 14. And it was, he was youthful. And sometimes youthful is very good. Right. Versus having teachers older than your parents. And it, it was, he brought some fun to school. And that was like a high point for me. And, uh, but high school was, uh, it was not shady side. <laughs> right. So as you progress it through your, your academic career then, and, and maybe even professionally, you know, when you started out, were, is there a particular person that, that really, um, I'm sure there are more than, more than just one, but, but somebody professionally who really impacted you and, or, or perhaps helped shape your direction overall? I know I was pondering that question a lot the last uh, 48 hours since I got my cheat sheet from uh, Lauren here. <laughs> and that's probably one of the hardest ones because I've like I indicated before in my professional career, I had a, an incredible opportunity to work with so many wonderful people. But one comes to mind, especially in this COVID period where unfortunately our, our seniors aren't enjoying their final window at, at Shadyside and kids around the country aren't graduating from college in the way that they should. But my first boss I had, who wasn't my father, because in high school, mm -hmm. uh, we li I lived a block from the high school and two blocks on the other side of the high school was my father's drugstore. So that's where I worked throughout high school and college. But my first boss, I worked in Israel for a couple of years after college. And my first boss was a fascinating individual who loved to tell stories. He was the treasurer of the town. And I somehow had become controller, which is a long story, which, <laughs> and his name was Tuvia Ellenbogen, who taught me that there's, today there's Budapest, but once it was town of Buda and there's a town of Pest on either side of the river. And what makes it even more fascinating today than the time is between the age of 14 and 19, which is, you know, our age of our high school students, in his lifetime, at that point in time, the, the Nazis came into Hungary when he was 14. At 15, he went to Auschwitz. He survived, his parents and his sister died. By the age of 16, he was in a uh, DP camp for <laughs> displaced persons. By 17, he was back in Budapest, caring for dozens of little kids who had been hidden and, you know, who also kind of migrated back. At 18, he, uh, he, was, he migrated to Israel, right, during the War of Independence. He got off the boat, they gave him a gun and sent to the front. <laughs> and then the war's over, he's just turned 19, and they said, okay, have a good life. Wow. They put that in perspective, and I know, you know, I feel, I feel for our kids, but turmoil is part of the world, and it unfortunately fell right on the class of 2020. But they're going to have a lot of opportunities in the future to celebrate, whether it's the August or when they graduate college. You, you, you got to feel disappointed, but no one should ever feel sorry for themselves. Because always yeah. people have it worse, more difficult. And he had to make a life for himself. And our kids are coming out of a great school. They have you know, wonderful mentors, parents. 
have a great education and the light, a wonderful paths ahead of them. Yeah. And uh, I think it's more the perspective this guy gave me <laughs> of stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, don't, no, don't go into these woe is me days. Right. Have there been times? Yeah. Have there been times where you figure where you um, have really had to, you know, put that, put that perspective to use? I mean, in your own career or life where you felt you've really questioned yourself or you've, you, you experienced failure in some way where you weren't sure what was next maybe, or. Um... Yeah, it happened about 20 some odd years later. I had started working for Seagram out of, out of grad school. And I figured I'd be there a year or two, three years. Well, three years came, five years, 10, 15, 20 years go by and thinking, well, maybe I'm gonna be here my whole life. And then it was, they were bought out and we were, we were eliminated. <laughs> and so for the first time in 21 years, I actually had to look for a job. And I never appreciated that it's, it's hard work looking for a job. And it's a totally different job. I've always said there's people who are very good at getting jobs and there's people who are very good at doing jobs and not necessarily the same. It's a totally different skill set. And I have been promoted 10, 20, I don't know how many times I've promoted at C Group. I never had to apply for the job because everyone knew me and it's all gills. But then when you go outside, all that knowledge of who you are isn't there. You're starting from square one. And it was probably the most difficult time for me professionally because I had to remake myself. Who am I? I had to sell myself. I never had to sell myself before in that sense of who, who and what do I bring to the party? And, right. you know, thinking about Tuvi and other things and other things I learned helped me get through that, that window of time. Yeah, that's such a difficult, I mean, I can re relate to that experience too, because you, if you, you essentially grow up in a, in a culture, whether it's a school or a company or what have you, and then all of those relationships that you have on, uh, you know, from the people who are cleaning the office that you work in to the facilities folks, to the, you know, the person, the security person that you see at the parking lot every morning. I mean, all of those relationships, you can, it's pretty easy to take them for granted when, when all of a sudden they're not there. I mean, they're not there in the, in a, uh, when you, when you leave a place and yeah, rebuilding that and sort of somehow telling the world about that part of yourself is, is, is very challenging. Uh, for sure. All in 30 and 60 cent second sound bites. <laughs> right. 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 But no, it's a whole ecosystem. When you're working, whether it's shady, it's an ecosystem, you know, people, right. there's a comfort level. And when you go across the street, it's like, okay, who are you? Right. Right. And I well, didn't appreciate that till it happened to me. Um, well, now that you're stepping stepping away from from Shady Side, um, this question maybe holds a slightly different meaning than it has for some of our guests. But is there something that you're doing now that you didn't think you'd be doing just a few years ago? Well, it's I never thought a virus would come and would be working on Zoom and meeting this, and we're trying to uh, implement a new system. And Tim Winter said to me, Gil, you may have to do some data entry and, and stuff like that. I never thought I had to do it. I've avoided it for so long. So it's a different kind of work that's going on now. But it's really just, uh, you know, I think back to, it was probably 1983, and we had to convince our boss to get a PC. 
<laughs> and yeah. he said, what a waste of money. What are, if I got a PC, I don't need you. I mean, that's the kind of mentality it was in the early 80s. And uh, a colleague of mine, Judy and I, we, 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 we finally convinced him. We got this. We worked on an entire week. Of, we had not how to plug it in. I mean, there was no, no one knew how to use PCs. It was just new. You had to do everything from turn it on to, and to figure it out. And, you know, Bill Gates was still in high school, just starting college, wherever he was. You know, there's no Microsoft yet. It was Lotus 1, 2, 3. And I was a wizard at it. <laughs> I figured it out. But then life goes on and you get busy doing other things. You start managing, you're moving up. And yet you have people, as I said before, doing these things. And so I kind of got away from technology. Then my oldest son was quite good at it. So he was our technology expert in the house. And now that I have to fend for myself here in the basement <laughs> the last couple months, <laughs> it has been quite challenging. Right. So um, you've done a nice job of sort of reflecting back with us and bringing us up to where you are. Um, as you think about the future, what are one or two things that you are wrestling with and what are one or two things that you are hopeful for? Well, the wrestling with is actually positive wrestling. I mean, this I'm wrestling with what's the right balance between travel, between <laughs> going to our place up in Canada and hiking versus how much time do I want to spend with nonprofits in Pittsburgh so it's, it's a great choice to have. I mean, I am an exceptionally fortunate individual to be at this point and have these choices. So it's how to balance things out. A lot of different organizations mm -hmm. that you want to get involved in this, you want to get involved in that. And I've been a person who always found it difficult to say no. Yeah. But at this point, if I, if I don't say no, I'm going to be a professional volunteer in Pittsburgh, which I don't want to do either. So it's, it's great choices. Like I said before, I'm very fortunate to have them, but just what's the right balance with Steffi of how much time to spend up in Canada? Notice the advertisement behind me here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, other places around the world. I mean, we've seen a lot of places, but there's still, you know, we're on a second top 10 of our bucket list. And uh, it's wonderful choice to have, and we're excited and looking forward to it. What are, what are some of the other things on the bucket list, now that you mentioned it? Well, we're, we're right now, on, we, we were planning originally in uh, August to go on a cruise up in Scandinavia. And even though prices are way down on cruises. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> we're not going. Good but we had that. We wanted to go around the Balkans. We wanted to go down to, to South America, Machu Picchu, go to... Uh, the islands of you know of Peru. Um, mm -hmm. We we've never really been to the national parks in the U.S. Uh, Steffi's never been to Japan and Hong Kong. She wants to do those. Um, you know, those are the next half dozen or so we want to do. Yeah, Galapagos. Yeah. That's where we want to get down there before it's still doable. But we've had the great fortune to see a lot of places over the years. I mean, the wonderful part of Seagram was we used to have events everywhere. We were a global company. Heinz was a global company. Yeah. So sometimes you have to pay to go to these places, which is even better. Yeah. And um, what are you hopeful for in the future? I mean, you've got a lot of places you want to go, and that, that, that certainly gives hope. Um, but when you kind of see all the stuff that's going on right now and you shared your perspective here, 
What, what keeps you hopeful for what's to come? Young people. I mean, my kids, not as young as anymore, they're all you know, in their professional lives. But there's always, it's renewal. And it's challenges. And this generation now has a challenge of getting past this virus. And as you both know, what we're working on in the school is how to create, you know, learning 3.0 this fall, which, you know, in the moment you're doing it is all, oh, it's extra work, but it's allowing you to give it, giving us a blank canvas to how do we want to recreate education? Because the education model that was in place four or five months ago was probably not going to be the right one from four or five years now. We're moving it forward. You know, we're still in the bricks and mortar mode. <laughs> there will be remote learning. College is too expensive. I mean, how can people do it? You know, the student yeah. loans that, you know, my kids' friends have is too overbearing. I mean, we have mm -hmm. to figure out a model that is more inclusive. And I think that just is an open slate that we really have to work towards how to make it better. And uh, we will, as, as I said, keep going back to you, you, you we'll figure it out. We'll get yeah. through this. And I think well, if we approach it in the right way, we'll get out in a better spot than we went in. Oh, Gil, there are so many things about you that I personally appreciate, but one of them is that I think there is a tendency, particularly for people who have been in the working world for a while to call upon the golden age when and really glorify what that was. And I appreciate so much your perspective on this because I mean, I, I know Chad and I totally agree with you that there's almost nothing more exciting than a major disruption to make you rethink and like give you the space to say, okay, now let's do some of the things that, that we've seen as, as deficits all along. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think this, this is one of those times, although certainly it comes with some real <laughs> growing pains. Well, always when you're in the middle of it, it always seems dark. Yeah. But what haven't we as a society, as a people, as a civilization, not gotten through? Right. right. And if people pull together, you come through on the better side. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Memorial Day weekend, you know, my father's generation, you know, they finished high school, early college. They went to, they went to Europe. They went to the Pacific. <laughs> they went and did it for three or four years. And they came back and everyone said, okay, go have a good life. <laughs> Yeah. And they didn't talk about it because, you know, it was, you know, in those days you didn't talk about it. I mean, people, my father's still were, were, were minuscule compared to most, but people just didn't talk about it. They just moved on. And yeah. uh, it's all about, you know, approaching things and understanding that we have the most wonderful opportunities there are in front of us. And especially yeah. to our seniors, who just going off to college, wherever it's going to be, and it's going to be a new college. Their experience will be different. They had older siblings, oh, freshman year was great. Well, their job will make theirs great, no matter what it is. And yep. it's who you meet and who you know and who you grow up with and what you get to do. It's yeah. exciting. Great. We, uh, Gil, let's transition to our lightning round. Oh, okay. These are, these are short, quick question, you know, well, uh, yeah, for the most part, just quick, quick, quick fire questions. Um, and the first one is, what is what would be your if you had to pick a song? What's your what's your sort of walkout or or get psyched song? If you were playing for the Pirates and they they called you out to bat, what was the song that 
that would oh, that's two. That's two songs. One only <laughs> because one of the first movies we went to was the the the, the battle song from Patton, <laughs> <laughs> which we used to play. The movie came out in '77 when I went to college. So before all our intramural games of basketball in college, we played it <laughs> to get. But now I would go more mellow, and um, it would be one of the last years of the Beatles songs, The Long and Winding Road. Okay. Because I think that's life. I mean, everyone talks about the road less traveled, but I view life as a long and winding road. You don't know what's around the corner, but you got to keep going. And yeah. I just hope for a lot more miles on that road to come. Absolutely. Uh, do you have a favorite food or what's the best thing chocolate. you've eaten? Stop, stop. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate right. dark and more chocolate. Any chocolate. All right. Let's be focused here. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Uh, a book you've read recently and enjoyed? Uh, actually, my son picked it up for me. My son travels like as a pilot and he saw this book. He read it and gave it to me. His, his name was The Last Call, which is about prohibition. And I knew a lot about prohibition from Seagram, but what I didn't appreciate and what this book was, was what told me, there were four constitutional amendments passed in a decade and they were all connected. And I never, never knew that before. If you think about it, we all know about the, 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 the amendment that you know, banned alcohol consumption, everything else, but right. there was an alliance of different groups that came together to get it done. So to get that done, they passed the direct election of senators hmm. because the prohibitionists knew that they could not convince unelected people to vote for it. <laughs> they passed the income tax. Till then, income tax only been during the Civil War. There was not, it was all taxes were regressive. They passed the progressive income tax because the federal government got most of its income at the time from excise taxes. Yeah. So to, they prohibited alcohol and there's no taxes. So, and then of course, the most was the, um, the women's right to vote. They were very involved in it because they viewed alcohol, some group subset of the women's movement was that the husbands spent all their money on alcohol and came home drunk. So they wanted <laughs> to, and so that was the, so three wonderful amendments were passed around one misguided one. <laughs> yeah. But to That's think that they're all connected and those groups, and yeah, I always view myself as a bit of a, his, you know, I'm gonna appreciate history, didn't realize the connectivity of those four amendments that were passed in an eight, nine year period. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I have to check that out. What's, did you get, do you know the name of the author or off your? Yes, uh, Daniel Okent. Okay. It's, you know, it's actually a great, it's almost a, a sequel. I had read, um, uh, Doris Kearns going the book on uh, Roosevelt and Taft, which takes you through the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. And this is right after when Taft sort of was finishing being president. And that window of time, so it's almost like right after. So they, they follow beautifully, but they're written from totally different angles. Great. Uh, what's one thing you've changed your mind about? Pittsburgh. <laughs> I never aspire to live in Pittsburgh. My wife was from Philadelphia and I was from New Jersey, as we said earlier. Yeah. And as you know, to put this whole conversation back in, you know, together, uh, when Seagram came to an end, 
it was right after 9-11. The economy in New York was, was weak for a year or two after. Everyone forgets it, but it was, it was aftershocks from it. And so someone said, you know, you may have to expand your market you're looking at for a job. I said, okay, we'll go to Pennsylvania. I meant Philadelphia. I didn't realize that mm. Pittsburgh was, yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so some, so I came to Pittsburgh and well, I've been here 17 years. It's a wonderful city. I've yeah. really come to appreciate it. You know, I thought maybe we'd be here five, six, eight years. Now two of our kids live here and work. And it's a wonderful city. And yeah. it's something that I would never have had the opportunity other than, again, some doors closed, other ones open. And I've really come to love Pittsburgh. The fact is we were talking before, I live right by Frick Park. You go for yeah. hikes. It's wonderful people and it's very welcoming. So yeah, Pittsburgh Great. would be the answer. All right, one, one last lightning round. And that is uh, if you have a, if you, do you have a, maybe you have a superpower or a secret weapon, or if you could have a, a superpower, what would it be? Uh, you know, this one is really comes from left field. It's a poem. And I don't like poetry. When in school they made you write poems, I couldn't rhyme from, I have no rhythm. I mean, there's nothing, nothing there. <laughs> but in eighth grade, when for graduation, we had to memorize the poem, If. Yeah. And the opening phrase is, you know, if you can keep your head up when all about you are losing theirs, there's no better phrase to know for life than that. Because at, at work, at Seagram, there are people always panicking. Oh my God, we got a deadline. We got this. Everyone's panicking. And oh my God, the pressure. And I'm thinking, we're not saving any lives. No one's shooting at us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just staying yeah. calm and approaching things because you think much better when you're calm. <laughs> and the people work themselves up. And I would say if I had a superpower, I would describe it as being able to stay calm in pressure situations. And it's amazing. People with a lot more IQ than I just panic themselves into inability to make decisions. Yeah. And I've been fortunate to be able to stay calm. And relax and enjoy because <laughs> life's going to happen whether you're enjoying it or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you let us, you let us right to the final question and maybe you'll stay on this path or, or maybe diverge. Um, but we know it'll be long and winding. Uh, the last question is, is about a personal actionable challenge. And I mean, typically we're thinking about this in terms of the shady side community um, but as you sort of close this chapter of your career, what is one actionable personal challenge for, for our listeners and something you would challenge us to do better for this community or, or beyond? The challenge I think that we all have to always do is remember others. As I said before, when you start working your career, it's all about me. I got to get ahead. I got to get this. I have to do the IIIs. And you have to get over that. And I think one of the things that enabled me to be successful is somehow I figured it out that you're only as good as the people around you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't bring other people with you, 
you, you really, what if, when you look back, what have you accomplished? I mean, I, I take great pleasure in the people I work with and, and how they help me and I help them. You know, it, it takes a village and the people have to remember that. And everyone doesn't have the same privilege. Coming out of Shadyside is a privilege. And when you get to college, these kids are class 2020, there'll be kids who come from my high school who never knew what a bibliography was, never had to write a paper, who freshman year in college is gonna be so difficult. And our kids are gonna have it so easy. Rather than saying, eh, help people, look out for people. And that is the most important thing we all could do. Thank you. That's really well great said. advice. And, uh, you know, I, I think we invited you to do this show with us because we knew that we had a lot to learn from you. But I think this time together has showed us probably we could do this for several more hours and continue to learn. And um, just thank you for doing this. And thank you for everything that you have given to us personally, to me personally, and to Shadyside, because I can definitely say with confidence that our school and our community is better for having you in it. Thank you, Gail. Well, same here, and it's, you know, wonderful people at Shadyside. I mean, Lauren, what you've been doing for the college uh, department, and Chad, but it's, you know, being dean of students in the most challenging of times, and keeping connectivity to our foreign students, domestic students, keeping kids, eh, you know, focused, and that's no easy task. I mean, I don't know how I would do it, and so kudos to you guys for keeping what you're doing, and for all the other people at the academy who keep it going. They do it. Takes a village. It takes a village, but it also takes people who are committed. You know, work is not nine to five. As much as you want to make it nine to five, there's no whistle. <laughs> Red Flintstone, yeah. we're not. Yeah. All right. So. Keep up the great work. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Gil. A pleasure spending a Sunday morning with you. <laughs>